As we close out 2021, and I can hardly believe this year is coming to an end, I'm eager to present you with some new episodes as well as re-release some favorites that I want to make sure you didn't miss. Dr. Jessica Drummond is a friend and two-time guest on The 15-Minute Matrix. This episode, where she maps endometriosis, is a winner. And because endometriosis is one of those conditions that often gets overlooked or dismissed, and where female patients are all too often told that the symptoms are in their head, I think it's an important one to listen to or re-listen to in order to remember that as we move into this new year, we'll all make a commitment to end medical gaslighting and take the time to truly listen to the stories of our clients and patients. Enough from me, though. Let's hear from Dr. Jessica Drummond. Hello, this is Dr. Jessica Drummond, and today we'll be mapping endometriosis on the 15-Minute Matrix. Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on the clinical relevance of the functional nutrition matrix, the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. The matrix is so important not only because it causes us to stop and assess, but also because it reminds us of three very important factors in our care recommendations and outcomes. Everything is connected. We are all unique and all things matter. Be sure to head over to this episode's show notes at 15minutematrix.com if you'd like to see today's topic mapped on a downloadable matrix to remind you of these critical aspects of care. Today on the 15 Minute Matrix, I'll be speaking with my friend, Dr. Jessica Drummond. Dr. Jessica Drummond is the CEO of the Integrative Women's Health Institute and best-selling author of Outsmart Endometriosis and Clinician to Coach. She holds licenses in physical therapy and clinical nutrition and is a board-certified health coach. She has 20 years of experience working with women with chronic pelvic pain, facilitates educational programs for women's health professionals in more than 60 countries globally, and leads virtual wellness programs for people with endometriosis. Dr. Drummond lives and works with her husband and daughters between Houston, Texas and Fairfield, Connecticut. Dr. Drummond, welcome back to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm thrilled to have you back. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. Can you talk us through what endometriosis is and what's actually happening in the body? Yes. Endometriosis is a disease state that has essentially three underlying causes. There is a genetic and familial cause. It's an inflammatory condition. And while this is a bit debated in the literature, I strongly believe that there is an autoimmune component. Mm. And essentially what it is, is um, uh, lesions that are like cancer, but they're non-cancerous, just the fact that they're growths that occur on and around the 
organs, uh, the reproductive organs, the digestive organs, rectum, but they can also be diaphragm, lung, knee, inside the nose. They can be spread throughout the body. By definition, they are outside of the uterus, but they can be on, you know, kind of on the outside of the uterus and fallopian tubes and ovaries and things like that. Hmm, That's more broad than we typically think of it by definition. Yes. Um, you know, most people think it is a kind of women's health reproductive disease. And many people are confused thinking that it's inside the uterus and that's sort of the treatment, the ultimate treatment is hysterectomy, but that's actually just a myth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like so many other things in women's reproductive health. Can we yeah. talk a little bit about those antecedents, those genetic factors that might predispose us? What have you found are uh, play at play there? Yeah. So what's interesting about that is that this disease tends to manifest just prior to puberty. So eight to 12 years old, you know, the symptoms can present, but also often it starts as more digestive bloating, you know, women in with endometriosis tend to call is that call that bloating endo belly. Mm. I clinically it it's SIBO 90% of the time or mm-hmm. you know 80 plus percent of the time. Um, but it, there's this presentation of bloating, constipation, sometimes diarrhea, sort of quote unquote IBS that presents around the time or just before before puberty. And then there's pelvic pain, there's sexual pain, pain with periods bladder pain, rectal pain, pain with bowel movements that can present in wide varieties of ways, can be cyclical, can be severe, can can be intermittent, can be all the time, um, can change as a woman's menstrual cycle matures. And so in, in terms of the family kind of folklore, it's challenging because sometimes you know, as, as girls are moving towards puberty, if many women in her family have experienced this, there can be a lot of conversation around, oh, well, this is just what it's like, you know, welcome to womanhood, periods are painful. So sometimes it's actually not that helpful that it's familial. That might even be one reason why it's often silent because Mm -hmm. it seems normal within that family, um, or at least common. And another huge, um, symptom is infertility. So again, there might be infertility in the family history, but, you know, depending on how many generations back we're going, it may not have been very much discussed. So there's a lot of silence around that. Now, on the other hand, if there is a a family history of infertility, of painful periods of digestive issues that were never addressed, that's a strong kind of indicator to me that, endometriosis is a more likely diagnosis. Mm, So much there. And you're really bringing us fully into the entirety of the matrix. And I'm struck by how much compassion we need to bring to those that are experiencing these symptoms and this diagnosis. What are the typical triggering events? You mentioned that it's considered an inflammatory state. So Mm -hmm. are there inflammatory triggers, both diet and lifestyle and other that we would be marking in a health history? Well, at least in exacerbators, you know, the the lesions themselves do tend to kind of be self-inflammatory and they also can produce their own sort of hormone supply, Hmm. uh, 
there are different variations in what kinds of hormones exacerbate the lesions, but that can vary even within the same person. So as I said, the lesions themselves are inflammatory, but then if we compound that with you know, someone who eats an inflammatory diet, who has a very stressful inflammatory lifestyle, who has sleep disturbances either caused or affected, you know, by the endometriosis condition or life stressors. These are things that we can modify in, in a way to help, you know, kind of lower that overall inflammatory load. So if, even if we're still dealing with a, an inflammatory condition, it really, really does help to lower that overall inflammatory load. So let's talk about how we'd get in there. Where are you typically beginning and what are the factors that you're considering when somebody either comes to you with an endometriosis diagnosis or you're suspecting it and they maybe haven't received that diagnosis? Yeah, both of those things are common in our practice because a true diagnosis for endometriosis can only happen with a skilled laparoscopic surgery. So people are all over the board in terms of where they are in that exploration. So either way, we are looking to optimize the food plan. We, in most cases, start with adding beneficial nutrients. We do a lot of GI MAP testing. We do a lot of urinary organic acids testing. Um, we, the, the beginning is really optimizing digestive function, chewing, mindful eating, mm -hmm. digestive enzymes, things like that. Then we can optimize the food plan individually by focusing on adding more colorful fruits and vegetables, but often cooked so we don't irritate the digestive system adding more herbs and culinary spices to, again, kind of amp up the anti-inflammatory power of the food plan. And in our program, before we even really get too granular with nutrition, we start with fitness tracking of heart rate variability hmm. in order to modulate and kind of down-regulate the nervous system with feedback to empower the client about what is upregulating her nervous system. That's so important. It's sort of like the pre-work you're tilling the soil before you get into these uh, therapeutic interventions that actually in and of themselves could be triggering emotionally and physiologically, right? Right. And you know, the thing is a lot of our clients struggle with eating disorder because if yes. you can imagine, you know, starting to have digestive discomforts and severe bloating when you're, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old, that's a factor, a causative factor potentially in the eating disorder. And at the end of the day, if it hurts to eat most or many foods, you start to become afraid of eating. So in our program, while certainly, you know, shifting the diet to be more anti-inflammatory over time is really important we don't want to start with just taking everything away without making sure that we're adding nourishing anti-inflammatory food, making sure people feel like there's an abundance of delicious foods to eat. They feel confident about where they can access those foods, how easy it can be to cook them, and put the nutrition plan in context of the entire life so that we're not overemphasizing diet when 
you know, nervous system, sleep, connection, support, all of these other factors are really just as important. Yeah, so important what you're talking about. And I just really want to underscore that importance of the nervous system being in overdrive, especially for somebody who's been in pain and triggered all the time and is likely making triggered responses and reactions to the food they eat because of this confounded symptomology. So I just really want to underscore and appreciate how you're bringing that together there. When we go back to the antecedents, are there certain populations of people either by race race or geography that are experiencing higher uh, diagnoses of endometriosis? Um, no, not from a genetic standpoint, from a gen, you know, sort of genetic, purely kind of physiologic standpoint, one in 10 people with uteruses globally on average have endometriosis. Now, women of color and probably transgender men, although I don't know that we have enough data to really give statistics for this, um, but women of color for, for sure are very much underdiagnosed mm-hmm. because there is a lot of uh, racial bias in medicine yep. that assumes that women of color are less likely to really be in pain um, and women in general, compared to men, uh, also, you know, have challenges with with being correctly diagnosed with any chronic pain condition. So endometriosis takes an average of six to twelve years to diagnose, and it's more difficult for women and in, in women of color to get the best, you know, to get the appropriate diagnosis in a reasonable time. Which would be true for transgender men experiencing these challenges as well potentially Mm -hmm. overlooked in this diagnosis process. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. If we go over to the central portion of the matrix, the soup, you, you really spoke about pretty much every area in the central arena. I know you have a real passion for looking at the role of environmental inputs and toxins in the areas that you study and research. When it comes to endometriosis, are we seeing certain environmental factors as major triggers? Yeah, certainly any estrogenic chemicals, you know, xenoestrogens, um, plastics are a huge challenge in this population. So we both focus on supporting estrogen metabolism and general hormone metabolism through liver, through the gut microbiome, but also lowering the toxic load as much as possible in terms of you know, skincare and other physical products used and you know, eating out of plastic containers, drinking out of plastic water bottles. And again, being not excessively stressed about that, you know, the occasional plastic exposure is completely inevitable in human life right now, but lowering that load is really helpful. And for some women, it makes a very big difference from a symptom standpoint to do, you know, if they have a very high exposure to change that to a much lower exposure, or if there's a kind of low load chronic exposure. I did have one client who lived in a very hot climate who was wearing plastic flip-flops all the time, Hmm. stopped doing that. And it made a really big impact on her symptoms. I've heard the same thing about plastic water bottles and symptoms as well. 
That's amazing that those tiny or seemingly tiny steps can make such a huge difference. I think we know this theoretically, but we're always looking for that shiny thing that could be the big organic acid result that's telling us where to go or the right probiotic. And there could be lifestyle changes that make a huge difference in symptom expression. For sure. Absolutely. So I want to end us, Jessica, I have two final questions for you. One is just around the kind of mind, spirit, and emotions that you see people experiencing as they're going through looking for this diagnosis or receiving this diagnosis and managing it in their life. We talked a bit about the nervous system, but how does this present having to live with this pain and frustration and, you know, uh, cyclical uh, issues all the time? Yeah. You know, I think there's a lot of trauma that's under dealt with. Also just general trauma, you know, in people's history that can exacerbate this because then that person's living more in, in fight or flight. So whether it's, you know, relationship trauma, childhood trauma, sexual trauma, birth trauma, but also a lot of medical trauma, gaslighting, you know, a lot of our clients deal with that. Um, And there is a lot of perfectionism around Mm -hmm. trying not to, you know, what did they do to make the symptoms worse? Like, as you said, sort of almost looking for those magic bullet things because, it's so life disruptive. 74% of women who have endometriosis say that it's literally taken them off their life's trajectory to, you know, finish college or graduate school to have a career. And so there's a lot of kind of pressure that women can put on themselves for doing everything perfectly. So they don't trigger their symptoms when that's not always within their control. Um, And so I think those two are the most common challenges from a psychosocial standpoint that our clients deal with. But there's also a lot of resilience because, you know, imagine if, you know, your whole life you've been dealing with intense chronic pain. Many of these women really are good at, for lack of a better word, kind of powering through, which again is is something we sort of have to unwind so that their nervous systems can relax. But it also shows them a deep well of strength that I think is really helpful for overcoming this diagnosis because it's a, it's a long-term lifestyle change to live with this underlying diagnosis the symptoms can very much be put in remission. There are much improved surgeries in the last decade, all the work that we do, and we collaborate with pelvic physical therapy. There's a lot of hope to really live without this disease, you know, blocking your life's trajectory. But it is a, you know, it's a day-to-day management of healthy living that, you know, of course, most of us should be doing anyway. It's just that they will people that have this underlying condition, it could affect them if they sort of quote unquote fall off the wagon for too long, for too far. So knowing they have this resilience can be really empowering. 
Yeah, I love that you brought it back to that resilience. Jessica, I'm a huge fan of your brain, your work. There's so much alignment there. We will definitely lead to your book and your website and your courses. But knowing that you have the ears of so many coaches and clinicians right now, if you were to tell us all something that you wish we knew about working with clients who may or do have endometriosis, what would that be? I would say you have an opportunity to be an advocate for true diagnosis, especially if you work with younger women with period pain or digestive issues. The sooner that you know these women are diagnosed, their fertility is more likely to pres- be preserved their lifelong career trajectory is more likely to be preserved. So if you work with, you know, gut issues or just general period pain or irregularity, um, the younger, the better suspect this diagnosis so that we can um, manage them appropriately as soon as possible. Mm, Such words of wisdom. Thank you so much for joining us, Jessica. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. Check out the latest in functional nutrition at functionalnutritionlab.com forward slash blog. The 15-Minute Matrix is produced, mixed, and edited by Rowan Bradley with production support from Natalie Merrill and the team at the Functional Nutrition Alliance. You can find episodes on all kinds of topics with more incredible guests at our podcast website, 15minutematrix.com. And if you'd like to be notified by email each week about our podcast releases, head on over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. Also, please feel free to get in touch with us. We'd love to hear your thoughts, your feedback, and who you'd like to hear next on the podcast. You can email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com. 